Bring me shelter, I will not harm you. Bring me shelter, please. Bring me shelter, I will not harm you. I would shelter you. People would do anything for their families. It could happen to anyone anytime. Somebody in France, somebody in England basically sat down with a ruler and just drew lines on maps. There are many different ethnic and religious groups that have been divided across borders and this has caused a significant amount of conflict. There are a lot of people who need safety. It is really cruel for a country like Australia to have policies that are focused only on pushing people away. What we're seeing is a number of people that remain in a state of limbo. And when non-sustainable land use combines with climate change, the crisis of refugees... I wasn't able to go and play with children. I had to go and really be an adult from a very young age. I think that's something that a lot of migrant children can relate to. Really, it was a dream for me to reunite with my family. I was just praying and hoping that that day will come one day. I think it's very important for people to understand that people have their own dreams as well and they're wanting to change the world with everybody else. Refugee Radio, 855 AM, 3CR. Hi, this is Rafiv Ziada, and you're listening to 3CR, pro-Palestinian, happily proud radio. Welcome to Refugee Radio this week on 3CR, 855 AM, or on 3cr.org.au. This week, we're going to be listening to an interview by a Palestinian advocate who's been working for quite a long time in the refugee camps in Lebanon. Uh, this interview is a part of the interview that was done on Tuesday Home Time with Jan every Tuesday from 4 to 6 p.m. Enjoy. We understand that many people in many countries are struggling to survive due to the Corona-19 pandemic, as governments deal with the fallout, some well, others with little regard to their citizens. But few people can imagine what life is like for refugee communities, mainly in the Middle East and Northern Africa, where life is precarious without an added threat. One such community is that of Palestinian refugees in camps in Lebanon, most have been there since 1948, and in more recent years, Palestinians and others forced from Syria due to the war there. Helen McHugh, Australian human rights campaigner, is one of those who does understand. She speaks daily with Dr. Alfred Mahmoud, who lives and works in the Burj El Marajna refugee camp in Lebanon. Alfred is the director of the Palestinian Women's Humanitarian organisation and has been to Australia a number of times. When I spoke with Helen recently, I asked her what the latest report from Olfat was, what she told her about the situation in the camp where she's lived most of her life. Originally the numbers of COVID in the country in, inside Lebanon were actually quite low. 
And then they made a decision to open up the country and so people came, Lebanese mostly, came back from overseas uh, into the country. And as a result of that, there was a spike uh, in the number of cases and also there had been some demonstrations and there were, there were probably some more, a spike in uh, the number of cases. So earlier last week, there'd been about 60 cases uh, a day, but the last couple of days there's been about 25 cases a day. But you've got to keep in mind that, you know, the Lebanese total population is only about 4 million, maybe 4.5 million. But the good news in that scenario is that uh, amazingly so far, the people in the camps in Beirut have not been hit by the COVID virus. was one family up in Wavell Camp in the Bekaa Valley, but that was the mother and three children up at Wavell Camp, which is in the Bekaa Valley. They've been affected, but they're recovering from the virus now. They're the only Palestinians so far in Lebanon that have been affected. Olfat was just making the joke the other day, a joke going around in the camps that COVID virus goes to the edge of the camps and sees how miserable it is and how poor all the people are and what a dreadful situation that it is that it decides to leave them alone and walk away. Their sort of black humour in um, you know trying to deal with the anxiety. People are very anxious because the situation in the camps is I'm sure most of your listeners know, first of all, in Bourjois-Varashny camp itself now has a population of 40,000 people, huge high density of population. Their health status is also very low. We've commonly seen blood pressure, diabetes and other poverty, some of which are poverty-related illnesses. And so the camps are particularly vulnerable at the moment, not least of which the cost of living in Lebanon has skyrocketed. It's almost impossible to buy food and basics. Most Palestinians are not allowed to work, as you maybe remember from our previous discussions, and so they just get casual day work. That, of course, has not been available because everything's been shut down, like in Australia, and as a consequence, their situation is very, very dire. UNRWA, which is the United Nations Agency for the Palestinians, did give them a $25 per person one-off support at the initial at the start of the outbreak. But you know, even if you had a family of, of sort of regular numbers, it would only be 150 US dollars, which uh, goes absolutely nowhere at the moment. So the situation, like uh, everywhere else, is that the schools have been shut down. And the living conditions remain serious. It's impossible to do proper distancing in such circumstances. Some provisions have been made for masks, but most of the time these are uh, unavailable. People can't avail of them. You're saying there's 40,000 people there. In what area? One kilometre square. They go up? Yes, yes. And also the numbers have increased substantially since the Syrian crisis and um, uh, not all the refugees, Syrian refugees, have returned home either. So the camps do have a substantial number of Syrian refugees. What about a water situation? I'd imagine that's pretty dire as well, yet people are supposed to wash their hands and keep clean. That must be dreadfully difficult. It is. It's, it's pretty well impossible, actually. So people have have always had um, difficult access to clean water 
And of course now it's it's got to be, you know, much worse than that. And also the electricity is very sporadic and so people can't keep you know, they can't keep provisions at all. And they don't really have much access to hand sanitizing materials. A feeder, Union Aid Abroad a feeder, have provided prevention and hygiene kits which included, you know, soap, disinfectant and gloves that they provided to people of the more extreme vulnerable households. But there's just a limit on those that were available for them to purchase as well. The schooling, of course, has been shut down. All the schools have been shut down. And that included the schools um, that the early child um, care centres that the Palestinian Women's Humanitarian Organisation was running as well. They have actually provided some provision through for those that can avail of it through WhatsApp and Instagram. The teachers have provided information to take home in much the same way that our teachers have responded in Australia. So they've got basics such as their mathematics, Arabic and English language that's still going on for some people, but that's been a major blow to their um, education programs. And in some of these really small houses or flats, I suppose you call them, there's up to three, four generations living in that small space together? Yes, give you a bit of an idea. If you laid three single mattresses down in a row, maybe another couple at the other end, like make them into a square, that would constitute your living, your average uh, living room in one of the camps. So that's what people do. They put mattresses on the floor and that's where they sleep at night. And then those mattresses are taken up during the day and piled in the corner so they've got somewhere to live. You can see that it's a very, very, very small area for the vast majority of Palestinians. Uh, living space, community living space. You know, sometimes the people have built rooms above their basic rooms, but that's very precarious as well. They're very unstable and some of those have collapsed as well. The thing as well, apart from having you know, trying to make provision for the family. People have also taken in Syrian refugees and where they're able to, those Syrian refugees pay a small amount of money to the Palestinians as well. The biggest problem really is access to food. People are definitely on the verge of starving. Even Olfat, who's you know, does have support, you just can't afford to buy foodstuffs at the supermarket or down in the market. Um, the inflation is just so high, up to 600%, and people can't afford, you know, to buy those foodstuffs. So that's a very major problem. What food would it be in the daily diet for a family these days? People, when they knew that the virus was coming, did what they've always done for civil war. So they went and stockpiled sugar and tea. They stockpiled lentils and onions, and these basic things that can... They can be stored easily, and rice. They would be having a diet along those lines. Uh, the Lebanese themselves also, you know, are facing serious access to food. It's not that there's shortage of food. They just can't afford to pay for it. So the Palestinians would be living on basic, really basic diets such as that. With Trump cutting the funding to UNRWA, how has that impacted the people in the camps? 
It means that the services which Honor provided before, such as the health services and the education services, they've all been cut considerably. I think I remember Olfat telling me that previously the schools, the Honor schools, they, they would have two classes in a day, like they'd have a morning school time and then they'd have, for a different another group of kids, an afternoon school time. So they would split the day in order to give the kids some opportunity at school. And with the UNRWA cuts, as I understand it, they've had to do that three times a day just to give the kids some you know, opportunity to go to school, which is a huge drain on the teachers, huge drain. Does the Lebanese government mm. contribute anything at all to the people in those camps? No. Most people get money from overseas. If they've got relatives living overseas who are able to provide for them, some people in extreme cases will get UNRWA extra support, those that are in extreme cases. But as I said, most people rely on this very casual daily work that's available for them to do when when the economy is working and and when they're not got COVID-19. But they don't they wouldn't have any financial reserves at all. If people did come down with this virus, it would be virtually impossible to isolate them. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. Um, what happened with the case in Wavell Camp up in the Becker Valley, they were taken to an UNRWA hospital and they were isolated in that hospital. And fortunately, nobody so far, in the camps anyway, with the exception of those people, nobody has uh, come down with the virus. Do they have some sort of guard on the, the borders of the camps to stop people coming in now? What they've done with the other non-government organisations and, and camp committees is that they, in Borjambarashni, they have a rotation of individuals who will do temperature screening from everybody coming in and out of the camp. So in their way, you know, they're doing their own monitoring, which is good. They also provide... Uh, information to people in the camp about, you know, the need to wash their hands at least and distance as much as possible and reduce the, and reduce the normal greetings, which are an embrace, as you know, kissing on two cheeks. You know, they've, they've tried to encourage people not to do that. So they're doing what they can about distancing and they're doing what they can about protecting the camps as well. Uh, so far, it seems to have worked, thank God, because if it got into the camp, it would be very difficult um, to, you know, restrain it. What does Alfred tell you about what is a normal day for her now in those camps? Well, she she actually teaches at the university, so her day uh, has been very, very full with teaching at the university. She does go across to the camp and she's in regular contact with the girls in the camp. I'll just say in relation to her, she uh, has had a lot of trouble as with everybody else, with the internet and other services in Lebanon because the electricity goes down and the services are not very good quality and doing teaching online is much more, a lot more stressful than doing your face-to-face teaching. In addition, where she was, she'd been working for about three months and then she was told by the dean of the school where she is that terribly sorry they didn't have any money. And so she'd worked all of this time and she hadn't actually received any money. They have amended that a little bit, but so she's had a little bit of money, but there just isn't money in the university to be paying these teachers.
So she is in touch with the, the girls, the teachers inside the camp, and they will be um, running the various programs that they used to run in the early education centre. They're now running those on WhatsApp or on Instagram. And they would be facing the same problems of, of you know, uh, access to the internet, um, access to good services within the internet. They're also doing giving out hard copies and they're in touch with the parents about how the parents can help the kids. Oh, very much like the teachers here, actually, how the teachers uh, can actually help the kids in the camp continue to do their studies so they don't fall too far behind. In a little while, I'll ask you what's the best way that people can help the people in the camps. But first, Helen, take you back in time to when you first met Alfred. When was that? It was uh, October 1982. Um, I had been working for the World Health Organization and I resigned after the Sabrishatila massacre. I felt that the United Nations had a responsibility to protect the refugees and they had failed that as they did later on in Srebrenica as well by the way and in Rwanda but anyway they failed to protect these two and a half thousand Palestinians in the, who were massacred at, at in um, Zavrishatila camp so I resigned um, my WHO post and went back as a volunteer and that's when I met uh, Olfat she was a nurse she was um, working in the emergency department and I waited for her to finish what she was doing and then we had a bit of a chat and we worked out where I would stay temporarily, which I did. I stayed in the hospital there with other foreign nurses. So that was upstairs in what was called Gaza Hospital in Sabrishatila camp. You're listening to Helen McHugh, Australian human rights campaigner, speaking about her friend Alfred Mahud and her life in Palestine refugee camps in Lebanon. Very soon after I met her parents in Borjama-Brajni camp, which was not very far away, you could walk there easily, and we remained friends since then. She was one of the first people when I set up with Cliff Dolan, a union aid abroad, well, at that stage it was a feeder, and later became named union aid abroad a feeder. When we set the organisation up, the second project we were able to have was to train nurses in community nursing, because that was one of the areas identified by Olfat and other people in the camps when I was there. She was one of the number of nurses that came to Australia and did some work in what we had in those days, community health centres. She then went back and actually did some teaching. She concentrated more on teaching and doing community health work and then eventually she set up the Palestinian Women's Humanitarian Organisation. She's been to Australia numerous times speaking about the situation of the camps and during the time I worked with the feeder I spent time there and then after I resigned I, I also spent time there um, with her and we've remained very close friends since then and um, fairly recently after many, many interviews we compiled her history, her story and with Danny Cooper managed to publish through Wildingo Press her biography, Tears for Tashiha, is the book. And um, that details uh, her story and her courage and her extraordinary resilience through years of war and years of deprivation. Well, she's truly a wonderful 
humanitarian and she's very dedicated and um you know she's my dear friend i'm worried about her that's why i talk we talk to each other every day or we text we you know we do whatsapp so i'm in touch with her every day because her health's not magnificent you know we're all getting on and she has a few health issues so of course i worry about her must have made a, a huge impact on you back in 1982 for you to then devote virtually a lot of your life to the Palestinian cause. Can you describe what it was like when you first went there and saw the aftermath of that massacre? Um, just prior to that, actually, I, I was on my way back to do an assignment. Having completed one assignment, I was on my way back to another assignment in Kuwait to help them set up an in-service nursing education program. When I arrived there, Israel had invaded Lebanon and so they set it to the headquarters in for the Middle East, uh, for WHO in the Middle East in Alexandria. They said, oh, we can't get any of the older WHO nurses. They won't go to Lebanon. Would you like to go, being an Australian, being young? I just said, yes, of course I'll go. And uh, one of the things I remember saying at the time was, well, you know, I haven't done midwifery, so I'm not quite sure if I get into a situation and find myself having to deliver babies, how will I go? And so they said, no, don't worry about that. That won't be an issue for you. So I then went to Syria. I was then seconded from WHO to work with UNRWA, the Palestinian agency. I went to Syria and then I went down into the Bekaa Valley and I was based in Baalbek and I stayed in Baalbek uh, a number of months. I've forgotten the exact amount of months now. But at the time, there were many, many doctors and nurses working for UNRWA who had fled from the south of Lebanon. There were not enough uh, nurses and doctors in the south of Lebanon to provide services for those who were at that time living under Israeli occupation in the south of Lebanon. So I was in touch with my superiors and said, you know, I'd really like to, I think the Palestinians can manage here in the Bekaa Valley. It was very stable. I'd like to go to the south of Lebanon. And they said, well, you'll have to come back to Alexandria to talk to us about that. I did. I went back to Alexandria during that time that the Sabah massacre took place. And so I resigned from the UN because of that, went back to Syria and then eventually found my way back to the camps in Bourjavarashni and that's when I met Olfat. I stayed, as I said before, living in... Uh, Gaza Hospital. I lived there, I don't know, for maybe, I've forgotten the exact number of months, but I lived there for a period of time. And then the Lebanese were actually rounding up all the foreigners and they were asking the foreigners to leave. I decided that I thought I might want to come back to Lebanon, so I didn't want to be expelled with the difficulty of then not being able to come back easily. So that's when I came back to Australia. I don't know, the beginning of 1983, and then May, April, May, had this idea that Australia had done very little for the Palestinians. And so I started embryonic idea that, especially with the Labor government in power, because Bob Hawke had just won early on in that year. And so I thought, well, here's maybe an opportunity to see if we can do more for Palestinians, because we weren't doing very much at all. And so I had discussions with DFAT, not DFAT, but, you know, the, the aid arm of the government, because it's changed its name so many times now, AusAid at one stage, 
And then I went round and talked to various people and was sent here and there. Some people saying, oh, no, that's a silly idea. Until finally I met up with Cliff Dolan. I had a written proposal and, I, as I said, I'd talked to the government and the bureaucrats were quite keen on the idea of an aid agency within the union movement. And so went to Cliff, whom I'd never met before, and we had a meeting of about 20 minutes. And he just looked at me at the end of it and had a look at the proposal and said, yes, we should have been doing something like this ages ago, and I'll put it to the executive of the ACTU. And that's what he did. And um, a feeder was born in January 1984. It's a long time now, Helen. How do you believe it's gone over those years? And you've been listening to Helen McHugh speaking about the situation for Palestinian refugees in camps in Lebanon. And I do hope that some of you might be able to assist by contacting So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. So we're going to finish the show this week uh, with a song. This song is dedicated to a friend, a Tamil refugee who has been released from detention after ten and a half years. So this song is in support of him and uh, his happiness for the future. The song is from the United Struggle Project and the song is called I Am a Refugee. I'm a human, I'm not animal. The, hu- the animals are not living in here.
We don't want no war. We don't want no. I'm no longer citizen. I'm now a refugee. My home under the siege. Fighting is all I see. I remember that day when I had bang at the door. All of us at gunpoint for my fellow mankind. With hope says mine. You either ride or die. My daddy said die. My mama ran away. Walking many many miles, sending many many files. Definitely, I found myself a refugee. Not human. Oh, yeah, you must just love you go.